Welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm new to reading Sweet Valley. And I can't believe that for another month in a row, I didn't absolutely loathe everything I read. What's wrong with me? I'm here with my not-so-evil triplets, Dove and Raven, who I think have given me way too much Kool-Aid for this damn series. I'm Dove, and this week I'm just delighted that I didn't have to review the class trip. I'm Raven, and I had to review the class trip. And quite frankly, I wish I could kick it into the fucking sea. I think I'm disturbed that I might have liked my book best out of everyone who recapped this month. This is not okay. Oh, no, I I like my book best. (laughs) Okay, good. I feel better. The world (laughs) has begun to spin anew. I suspect Raven didn't like his best, though. No, I did not. Clearly. He's giving a slight subtext of he did not enjoy this book. No, mine was not a Sweet Valley book. It was just absolutely atrocious. It was rivaling Ithig in how bad my book was. He's very subtle in his hate, too. So this month we recapped Second Best, Boys Against Girls, and clearly The Class Trip. It's Second Best. Jessica is trying to bring her grades up enough to get ungrounded before a giant party because we actually have some continuity from the previous books. Elizabeth wants to win an essay contest. And we get our important side characters for the book, Dylan and Tom McKay. Tom is a popular sports god who is in sixth grade with the Wakefield Twins. Dylan is an antisocial seventh grader who thinks everyone prefers Tom to him. Spoiler, they do. But Dylan also doesn't make it easy for them to like him. Dylan is a great writer, but he won't enter the essay contest because he's sure Tom will win. Elizabeth, the meddler, secretly submits his essay for him. Jessica once again becomes the leader of something and then learns how much work is involved when you're the leader because this is a lesson she will never remember from book to book. Dylan wins the essay contest thanks to Elizabeth's meddling and all is well in Sweet Valley. Except for the fact that I did not hate this book. I almost enjoyed it. This is terrible. (laughs) I love how she hates herself for liking books. (laughs) Like, the self-hatred is growing. In Boys Against Girls, Elizabeth and Jessica get a new homeroom teacher called Mr. Davis, who is a galloping sexist. He separates the boys and girls, each on one half of the classroom. He assigns what he deems all the girly jobs, such as watering the plants, tidying the room, looking after the cute little critters, etc., to the girls, and then just ignores them and leaves them to rot. This escalates to the point where all the boys start mimicking his behaviour, and Jessica rallies all the girls in the homeroom to 
combat this problem and for once actually uses her evil little mind for good rather than bad. Everything comes to a head at the softball game and eventually Mr. Davis apologizes in the most grudging way possible and then the girls run out and win the game and everything is fine and yay he's no longer sexist except for he clearly is and yay everything's everyone wins and yay everything's fine except for it's clearly fucking not. Okay so this week I reviewed The Class Trip. In The Class Trip, the twins visit the Enchanted Forest Amusement Park for a school trip. Today, Elizabeth randomly hates Caroline Pierce and refuses to travel with the sixth grade gossip queen. When Jessica forgets that she'd promised her sister they'd sit together on the bus, abandoning Liz to a gossipy fate, she vows a furious vengeance. Elizabeth decides to, shock horror, ignore her twin. (gasps) While doing so, Liz and Amy violently bump heads in the medieval-themed King Abelard's castle attraction. This achieves two things. First, it knocks some sense into Liz, who rethinks her plan. She can't stay mother her sister for long, after all. Second, her blackout triggers an appalling dream sequence, which sees the park come to life. While searching for her sister to apologise, Elizabeth rescues a princess, battles some evil knights, befriends a talking mouse, climbs a rainbow, escapes a flooded cave with the aid of Tom Sawyer, meets a host of fantasy characters brought low by wicked witchcraft, and rescues Jessica from a gingerbread house through the power of laughter. She also rides a flying limousine piloted by Johnny Buck. When she wakes up, she marvels at her adventures. They were all a dream. Or were they? Yes, yes they were, you fucking idiot. I hate this book. Wings turn purple. She's wearing this, like, reddish mauve top. It it could just be pure red, but it's quite dark in there. And her face is the same. Jesus, I think we are actually killing her. Are you okay there? We got a thumbs up. She's not dying. Excellent. Walk it off, Wing! Walk it off! <laughs> that was genuinely scary. In fact, that was more pedal than was in the, the fucking class trip. Oh my god, your freak out of it is the greatest thing ever. I can't wait to read the actual recap, which at the time of recording uh, has not gone up yet. But that summary was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Which is funny, because the book is one of the worst things I've ever read in my life. Oh dear. You okay? I am. I'm okay. Glass of water? No, no, I'm a bit of oxygen? I thought you were asking me if I was okay having to recap that box. (laughs) I am, yes. I've got over it now. Thank you for asking. Clearly, she doesn't care about your well-being. (laughs) So, as much as I want to start with that book, we should save it for the end of this section. So, we'll start with Second Best, uh, which I recapped, and like I said, did not hate. It's not as good as last month because there is a lot of Elizabeth smugness to it as Dove says in my recap and it's supported like her smugness happens because she is saving the day as usual but it's super entertaining besides that I really like the conflict between Dylan and Tom and how hard it would be to be the older brother and be eclipsed by your younger brother uh, and to have your parents really support his interests instead of yours Though they're not malicious about it, it's just that Tom is far more outspoken about what he loves and doesn't love, and Dylan is much more reticent when it comes to anything, basically. Uh, I really enjoyed the stuff going on at the school, both Jessica's machinations to get ungrounded in time to go to the party, as well as this giant class project that involves opening a store and selling something to the, the other students and who's going to win and sell the most. And Jessica, once again wanting to be president of something that 
she then realizes is a terrible idea because the president has to do all of the work. And in a very realistic fashion, she set up her business to have way too many vice presidents and not nearly enough people actually doing the work. And it's just fun, surprisingly fun for as simple as the story is, except, of course, for Elizabeth, as always, saving the day because she can't help but interfere in everyone's life. I think the thing that annoys me the most is the tagline on the front of the book. Is the boy's problem too tough for even Saint Elizabeth to handle? I mean, I've inserted the saint, but every other word is verbatim. That's true. That was a huge what the fuck moment when I was writing at my recap. Like, why is she even involved in everyone's arguments? And why is the, everything turning on whether she can handle it? It really should be whether they can handle it. I mean, at one point, they're having a fist fight in the cafeteria. A one-sided fist fight, to be fair, because Tom is pretty awesome in this book and is doing everything he can to support his brother. And Dylan's anger just overflows there. But it has nothing to do with Elizabeth. And yet here she is, the story revolving around her. And yet yeah. it still didn't make me hate this book. What the hell is wrong with me? If this book was written properly, the tagline, if it had to be as tacky as that, should at least be, is Dylan's depression too big a problem for him to handle alone? That is very true. Uh, depression, the word depression or, or the diagnosis is never used in this book, but it's very clear that it's being written, at least, that Dylan is deeply depressed and desperately needs help and not help from a meddling classmate, but actual real help. And in a way I thought it was handled surprisingly well because it's not like his family is turning on him or, you know, just buck up. You can get over it. Tom really wants him to be happy. He's really trying to support Dylan. Even when Dylan pushes them away, we don't see hardly anything at their parents, but they never come across even from Dylan's point of view as if, uh, they hate him. They just are really into Tom's sports aspect of things. Uh, so it's not like he's being pushed away because of his depression. He is just isolating himself because of his depression. And that's such a true way to write it that it was actually kind of painful to read, but in that good way where something rings really true. And the fact that this happened in a Sweet Valley Twins book is still kind of blowing my mind. You like the book. I hate you. I was waiting to see if Raven had anything to say about this book, but well, clearly... I, I enjoyed this book. I mean, I, I think I enjoyed the subplot more than the main plot. I enjoyed the, um, the, uh, the, the class project that you mentioned before with the, um, the, uh, the boutique that the unicorns opened um, alongside the, the, the magazine that Jessica and her group did. Um, but I still didn't understand why, why that was deemed to be a good thing that the, the, the rest of the students had wanted to buy basically regurgitated school essays that they'd written themselves in book form. I agree. It's basically like a sixth grader. They kind of hint at the idea that maybe they pull stuff from the whole school, but it really feels just like a sixth grade literary journal that has nothing really literary of value in it. They kind of briefly talk about collecting poems from the students. We don't really see that. The bulk of what we see is them including essays from Mr. Bowman's classroom 
Essays, which, by the way, might have been graded before he gave students <laughs> access to them, which really has me side-eyeing him because that's not okay to share other students' grades. Nor is it really clear that the students have agreed to let their essays be handed out willy-nilly. So, yeah, Mr. Bowman, I'm watching you. On the plus side, Lois got her um, her poetry into it. So go, Lois. She did. You exist. Was Although that I suspect her she poetry? lumbered. Good. I, th- I, th- I thought it was hers, I read yeah. as if it was hers, but I could be wrong. I Although I suspect she, she uh, lumbered into the office where they were typing up and, you know, dropped it off on her way on her way between 50 burgers at the Dairy Burger and 15 milkshakes at, at Casey's place. You know, to be fair, in her brief appearance, they do not deeply mock her weight, uh, though she is very much a sycophant towards St. Elizabeth. Uh, I really thought she was dropping off poems she collected from other students, but that's, I guess, not super clear. So perhaps it is hers. I like that idea better. Uh, and, and speaking of Lois, there is a scene uh, when Jessica and her mostly unicorn group are talking about their boutique where one of the guys starts to mock Lois and Jessica shuts him down. Not because she thinks it's a bad idea to mock someone for being bad, but because Elizabeth has told her not to. But still, Jessica does shut it down, which is, for Jessica, improvement. Yeah, I saw that as a um, an actual re- little rebellion by Jamie Suzanne. Because I, I, I do think that, that the, the series does have a lot of key points that the... The publishers actually want you to mention, and I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if his "Let's have a little joke at Fatty Fat Lois" is is one of their guidelines that they're given because it happens every single book. Um, whenever she's mentioned, it's always that, and I think it yeah, and she that, always lumbers. Yeah, yeah. So I think that maybe this one was um, well. I have to do this. Let's um, see if I can subvert it a little bit. So I, I think kudos to the writer there, but maybe I'm, I'm overthinking it. Who knows? See, I was reading that as Jessica has no idea what right and wrong is. And she just remembered, like, one of the little notes that Elizabeth gave her, like, stop being a dickhead. I do think it's true that Jessica doesn't know what's right and wrong, which I am coming to enjoy. I love Raven's theory about the little ways that the ghostwriters rebel against what they're being forced to write. So I am hoping that's true, and I'm going to just accept that as what actually happened. Uh, also, Jessica and her little unicorn group coming up with a boutique to sell clothes, like their cast-off clothes to the school, is both a really great idea and something that should raise a ton of money, and also so true to the characters in a wonderful way that it kind of blew my mind. It's perfect. It's smart. It's doable if they weren't, you know, super top-heavy in their business organization. Obviously, their cast-off clothes is a misnomer because really these are clothes that they haven't ever worn before. Some of them still have tags on them, so it's not like it's ratty old clothes. It's really fashionable things. It's exactly what they love. And because they are, for some reason, the most popular kids in the school, people are going to want to buy it. It's a brilliant business idea, and I don't know how it happened. The thing with that is, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a step change above like, for example, the other things that are being sold. So we have the boutique that the unicorns set up, which is a, a tangible thing, in that the student body can go away with actual things that they would want to purchase. People go clothes shopping, and they go away with that sort of thing. They can go away with these clothes. But the other stuff seemed to be things that nobody would really want in general. Like, oh, let's buy this 
student essay book or let's buy whatever the other stuff was. I can't remember off the top of my head. So I, I would also like to think that because it was the Unicorns Boutique, a lot of the stuff was bought by other members of the Unicorns. Because Lila would bring all her clothes and then the other people in the group would go, oh, that's a nice top, I'll save that one for myself. So a lot of the revenue that they created from their good idea actually was all in-house revenue from, from themselves. Another thing with that is, if a lot of the clothes are purple, I don't think the unicorns would want to sell those clothes to people who aren't unicorns. Because all of a sudden, the, the, all these clothes that they've sold, the student body then comes into school the next day wearing clothes that are all got the sort of purple motifs and little unicorns embroidered onto them. And then Lila will kick off and take all the clothes back. You say that. Um, the, the next book I have to review is called The Bully. And Jessica actually says to uh, pending unicorn Grace Oliver, once you're a real unicorn, you'll be allowed to wear purple. As if there's some sort of like school-wide embargo on it. Well, clearly there's a school-wide embargo on it. That's a really fair point, that they wouldn't actually want to sell off their purple pieces to it. I did think it was super realistic that instead of actually selling the clothes out, and this is something that, that actually comes to head in the book, and Jessica realizes it's a mistake, they're just exchanging clothes. Oh, I love this, so I'll trade you this, uh, which means they're not selling anything, and they're keeping all the choice pieces back for themselves. And, okay, it comes from St. Elizabeth, but still, Jessica does eventually realize that that's going to make their booth fail and fixes it. Because she actually steps up and acts like a president for a brief, shining moment of joy. Yeah, I love it when she gets up and grimly says, I've got a load of vice presidents to demote. It's like, yeah, go Jess. I mean, on the other hand, she does leave Amy and Elizabeth in charge of her booth for pretty much the rest of the sales period, but that's also pure Jessica. That's delegation for you. Getting away from the actual subplot and going back to the main plot, um, do you think there's a need for more adult intervention at any points in the book? I mean, when Dylan runs away and they're all careening across town to try and find him at the bus station, they don't really do much with that other than go and bring him back by telling him that he's won the competition and everything's fine. I do think yeah, that's the part of the kind of depression metaphor that falls really flat. So it's such an easy fix, which is, of course, true to how Sweet Valley books go, not true to reality. I do think the other place they desperately needed adult intervention was during the fist fight in the cafeteria, which basically ends before any teacher or cafeteria aide shows up, which seemed even in the 80s and 90s really unrealistic to me. But even when they did show up, all they, the teacher does is accept the excuse that Tom makes for his bloody face and gets him off to the nurse. So, yeah, adults do nothing in this book, even when they do exist. But to be fair, they pretty much do nothing in the universe. <laughs> That's um, true. One thing I did like that was kid-centric and completely devoid of adults for all the right reasons was the fact that Dylan didn't get an invite to Kimberly Haver's really exciting party. It's like the party of the year. And just like the crushing depression and just didn't he have like a little sliver of hope as he opened his locker and then it just all came crashing down. He was like, oh, screw the world. I knew they wouldn't invite me anyway. It's like been there. That sucks. Sorry. He did have hope and his hope was really bolstered by the fact that he overhears people talking about how she has to invite the entire seventh grade. 
So everyone's getting an invitation, he thinks, except that he does not actually get one. And it's really terrible. It's heartbreaking for him. It's true to school and, and mean middle school or preteen kids, but it's horrific in how it's done. And there's the added side of it, which is Kimberly must invite every seventh grader to her party. And she's only inviting some really popular, really special sixth graders. Only the best of the best get to go. And so Dylan doesn't get invited at all. And he should have got invited. And Tom gets invited because he's super popular and it just sucks for him. All right. Sorry. Mr. Wing, who works in a school district, was just informing me that it's quite possible that, A, they would let the fight go for at least the first few minutes to let it get out of their system. Because there was a case in the 80s where the school was, I guess the parents turned around and sued the school because they were too rough in separating the kids from a fight. And so teachers are more hands off now. But also, uh, even if they saw it directly, they might not take drastic measures to punish them, at least back then. It was more kind of a boys will be boys type of thing. He says that uh, in the case that has made all the schools kind of reticent to get involved, at least in the 80s and 90s, two kids were play fighting. They weren't actually fighting. A teacher didn't understand that and tackled one of the kids. And so really did more damage than the fight itself would have. So basically, even though now kids are super protected and schools are really touchy, especially after Columbine in the late nineties, apparently at the time that this happened, it's very likely that they wouldn't have gotten involved. And when, once Mr. Bowman did, they wouldn't necessarily have punished them, just made sure that they were okay. To be perfectly honest, I think that, Mr. Nidek or someone like was probably videoing the fight for his own personal viewing. He's got like video tapes and stuff. That that and that sort of crap would have been up on the internet in in these days. This day and age, straight away. You know what that is? That's going to end up as a segment on the VHS movie series. Just Tom and Dylan McKay beating the crap out of each other, all in Nidek's uh, video archives. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, that was Mr. Wing's informational hour. Welcome to the podcast, briefly, Mr. Wing. Thank you, Mr. Wing. To once again touch on the main plot that we keep really jumping away from, as we kind of brushed over, Dylan does run away. He first makes plans, goes down to the bus station, and the first time runs into Jessica there, who's actually doing research for the for the school project that they're working on, the big uh, boutique for them kind of weird that she sees him there. She doesn't really think anything of it, even though he's really worried that she's going to go tell someone she saw him and it'll ruin his running away plans. So he really is deeply in that kind of anxiety, paranoia, piece of mental illness where you're certain that, that people are out to get you and maybe not in a malicious out to get you, but he's afraid she's going to spoil his plans. Jessica, meanwhile, has pretty much forgotten she's seen him the second she walks out the door because she's Jessica. When he does finally run away, uh, Elizabeth, in talking to Jessica, gets this little piece of throwaway information. She and Tom race to the station to stop him. They manage to get him before he gets on the bus, tell him about the essay that, by the way, Elizabeth still hasn't told him she secretly submitted for him. And yes, the fact that he won and he now has an invitation to the party, and even though he knows it's not true, an apology from people about not inviting him in the first place, 
everything is wonderful and wrapped up in a neat little bow. I have a question. Why was Jessica researching at the bus station? She's doing a fucking clothing boutique. Like, did a blouse want to visit San Diego for the day? I don't get it. So as a part of the project, no matter what they were doing, they had to research logistics of transportation. But again, it doesn't actually make sense that she would research a bus because you don't ship things via bus. I bet Jessica's actually had this genius plan. She's just going to get like a skinny little office junior and just pile every bit of clothing on her and write, you, bust to San Diego now. I think she's got very long-reaching dreams if she thinks she's going to be selling all these purple tat from the unicorns to, to like countrywide. That's pretty impressive. Mr. Wing has interjected again, saying that some bus lines do ship things. You drop them off at a little ship station at the... You drop off your package at a little shipping station at the terminal. They'll take it on. It gets picked up and then delivered, kind of like UPS or FedEx or other postal services, which is not something I knew and sort of makes Jessica look really smart here. Crap. I still don't think it does because, you know, this was like 1988, so surely just chuck it in uh, chuck it into the post office he claims that like greyhound buses will pull a trailer and it's just pure freight i have literally never seen that so i am skeptical that this information is correct but you do realize on our road trip we're going to see like fifty thousand greyhound buses dragging freight yeah you're probably right and then we'll all be proven wrong uh yes people we very shortly leave on a holiday together like a basically a week away at this point so yeah that'll be fun when we come back and all we could talk about is what we did <laughs> so yeah that was another mr wing power hour or as raven has now dubbed him ostrich that was another ostrich informational hour uh, and it really does kind of wrap up the second best discussion, unless you guys have anything else to say about it. No, I got nothing. Uh, yeah, so in short, I ended up really liking it, despite meddling smug Elizabeth, and I don't really know what to do with myself. So let's talk about Boys Against Girls, Dove. Okay, I actually really like this book. I know it, I know it's frightfully shallow, and there's not much going on, but I like the idea of it. I love the fact that... Jessica rallies the sixth grade homeroom girls into fighting Mr. Davis's sexism. I don't know. It's just awesome seeing Jessica using her evil, evil powers for the greater good. See, it is pretty delightful. And while it did make Wing go boom, it was for very realistic reasons. Like it was the sexism of the story that did it, but that's treated as something that's terrible. and needs to be fought against in a wonderful way. So the book itself was fantastic and it intentionally made me hate things that I was supposed to hate. So very effective too, which again is worrisome for me. Did you find yourself liking Jessica through it as well? Cause that's, I think one of the best manipulations of this book where you're sort of behind her yelling, Jessica is our queen. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing. I can't believe I feel that way. But yeah, she was fantastic. I mean, the manipulation wasn't super logical in what they decided to do, but it was very true to pre-teens and to Jessica specifically. So yeah, even that made sense and really worked as a mistake because it does kind of blow up in their faces, but it worked as something that the book supports and lets them make these mistakes. And it still shows that even if they're making mistakes, they're still fighting back. And that's the important part. 
part of the thing was they were assigned all the girly duties like cleaning up and feeding the animals and stuff like that. And Jessica's initial plan was ask the girls to act as they are being treated. So they can't feed the gerbils because they're scared of tiny animals and they can't water the plants because the watering can's too heavy and stuff like that. And then they act all silly and girly and they giggle a lot and they just talk amongst themselves. And admittedly, it doesn't work because Mr. Davis is so intent on his very wrong mindset. He just kind of shrugs and goes, oh, girls will be girls. Silly, free, free, little frilly things that they are. And they also have a softball game and... The girls, again, act like girls. They squeal every time the ball comes near them. They skip instead of running. And the outfielders all just meet up to pretend to have a really intense conversation rather than playing well, which is something they love. And I said this in my recap. I can't actually fault their logic for trying this. I mean, you could see how easily it would blow up in their faces. But at the same time, if they played well, it's not like they were going to give get any credit and they could have still lost their, their place anyway. If the team had won, Mr. Davis might well have said, oh, boys, you did so well. We don't need those girls. I agree. And I actually really liked how the sexism was presented in the books. It's not I mean, it is obviously a little obvious obvious because of the type of book this is but it's not really flat out where you can tell that he's being horrible and intentionally horrible it's just that kind of very insidious sexism where oh well girls can't like this because it's sports they will like this or girls of course are naturally homemakers and the boys are going to do things like run the errands and run messages around it's that kind of thing that's really true and still happens today uh, it's hard to put a finger on it. It's much more these little microaggressions. And I liked it. That's how it was presented. And, of course, that the text supported how wrong that was. I mean, personally, when I was reading the book, I had a bit of a Madame Andre moment uh, with Mr. Davis in that I at first presumed that Mr. Davis's awful teaching techniques and his sexism were part of a greater lesson that he would eventually reveal to me. And as you can see, I've been very sexist, and this is what sexism gets you. You're believing me now, boys, but it shouldn't be like this, etc., etc. Big damn lesson, everyone's taught, everyone goes home happy. But no, again, it's just a failure once more of the teaching staff at Sweet Valley Middle School to to have any sort of input and positive effect on the lives of the people they're teaching. That school needs closing down. I tell you, there is not one teacher there, apart from the, randomly, the woman who sussed out what Ithig was really, really quickly. Every other teacher there needs putting into a cannon and firing into space, because they're just failures on every level. Even the people who took Mr. Davis to task in this book after doing a lesson observation with him, and basically took him outside and just said, book your ideas up, mate, start talking to the girls, and then left it at that. It, it's just awful. I mean, yes, I know that's what the book was getting at, but that angered me to a certain extent, which meant I couldn't enjoy the book as I've enjoyed others. I do agree. I think basically every adult in Sweet Valley is functionally useless uh, because, as you said, Mr. Clark was actually the principal and he did sit in on a lesson where Jessica had masterminded them acting scrotty, chewing gum, talking amongst themselves. Um, every time they were asked a question, they giggled or didn't know the answer. Um, when they were asked what they wanted to talk about, they said makeup, high heels, girls clothes, you know, that kind of nonsense. And Mr. Clark, the principal, just kind of lets this roll for a good 15 or 20 minutes before going, do they always behave this badly? And Mr. Davis is like, who? There is nobody on the left side of the classroom. If they don't have testicles, I'm afraid they don't exist. And Mr. Clark's like, yeah, 
yeah, any chance you could, you know, moderately improve upon that thought process? You know, it's not sort of like you're a massive dickhead. Girls matter, blah, blah, blah. It's more a case of, huh? Yeah, you may want to revise that just a smidge. I, was say, I agree. Uh, I do think big picture you both make a good point, especially Raven's point, that none of the teachers here positively affect their lives, really. I did like that because he doesn't get any sort of criticism, really, from outside it, it's that the girls themselves are demanding to be taken seriously and demanding to get their places back. And I did like that, putting the power with them, because what happens at the end is that during this final softball game, which if they win, they're the champions of the school, which I do like how they mentioned early in this book, oh, we've been playing forever. We've gone through all of these games. I'm like, yes, that never showed up in any of the other books ever. But uh, they sit out because he obviously thinks boys should play sports. The boys aren't winning. Uh, when they come ask for help, the girls are really, really, they shoot them down all the time. And the other unicorns start this chant about wanting the girls. And it's just this great scene of girls banding together, whether they want to play or not, to support each other. And it involves the unicorns, which is shocking because they so rarely support people outside of their group. And I really liked it. I thought it was a great little underdog sexist push or pushback against sexism that really worked for me, even though logically... Yeah, the teachers should have been reprimanded. The uh, administration should have stepped in to do something about this. Their parents should have been willing to listen to their complaints because that's a running thread through this. That the Wakefield parents don't want to hear any more complaining about new teachers when they haven't actually heard much complaining about new teachers. So, yeah, the adults were completely useless. But I liked that that empowered the girls to do their own thing in that final scene. Yeah, if we go back to what you were saying about the um, the unicorns um, starting the we we want the girls channel, that was really really good. Uh, I did enjoy that. So that was a good point you made there. Um, the the fact that as you said again that the softball game was the championship game and it seemed to appear from nowhere through the other 15 odd books that we've read they haven't mentioned it once and Jessica seems to be an amazing softball player. She's obviously got them to the brink of the championship win and is a much lauded player. Um, in the softball team or squad and then a new teacher comes in and can suddenly choose the squad of this championship winning side or championship threatening side did they not have a coach up until this time does the homeroom teacher get to choose the softball squad all of a sudden that's it i was very surprised that mr davis got to be the homeroom teacher and also the softball teacher and can change the squad suddenly I think what it is is that it, this, the teams are made up of the home room. Like, the home rooms are the teams that are competing against each other. It did seem weird to me that he could just come in kind of as this new substitute, or at least a brand new teacher, and just make all sorts of changes, when clearly the whole school knows how good the girls are playing, particularly Jessica, even if the reader has never seen this before. So that was that was very weird. But I do think the teams are intentionally made up of everyone in your homeroom class as a way to split it up versus specific coaches picking things. This isn't really an external. They're not competing with other schools. They're just competing internally. Okay, so uh, I'm just trying to get this straight in my head. So the sixth grade at Sweet Valley has a number of homerooms of the same age? Yes. uh, So 
homeroom is not something that happens in every school here, but in general, if you're going to have it, you'll have probably four to six, depending on the size of your school, maybe even more different homerooms. So it's not like all of sixth grade is in one homeroom, even though pretty much all the students we know in the sixth grade are in the same homeroom. But, uh, you know, convenience to the story. But yeah, they'll have probably, as schools that size, four or five different homerooms. So the different homeroom teams have been playing each other back and forth. But yeah, with, so each with, grade will have their own homeroom, a number of homerooms. Was that not something you had like in your school? Because, I mean, admittedly, we didn't call it homeroom. I think it was just registration, but we had uh, six different guilds in our school. And so there was about 30 girls in each guild per year. So Yes, that was certainly something that we had in our school. We had four um, Leverhulme, Dodds, um, Barber and Hodgson with the four homeroom or the four registration um collectives if you like but the i assumed that would be the same in sweet valley but i think as wing mentioned we don't seem to see any other sixth graders other than the ones that are mentioned in the story and are in the homeroom for uh, elizabeth and jessica's homeroom if you like it and it's not that it's not that we see those homeroom children talked about in one group and then we we hear other names from other homerooms we just don't hear about them at all as far as i can work, work out they're not even mentioned in passing. Sophia Rizzo, Brooke Dennis, uh, Cammy Adams, Kerry Glenn. Any? Are they all not in the homeroom for? No, no they're not. Right, okay. Uh, Pamela Jacobson, Ellen Reitman, is she in it? Or is it Reitman? I, I always say Reitman, but I think it might be Reitman. I think it's um, Reitman. Is she in, in sixth grade with them, though? I always think that she's older, but maybe she's no, not. Maybe she's it's just not. that her cousin she's sixth is older. Grade. Okay. Um, no, um, Lila's the one with the cousin. Oh, my God, I get those unicorns mixed Caroli- up. Caroline Pierce is another sixth grader who's not in their homeroom. So, yeah, you do actually hear a, about different people. Uh, coming up, we've got Sarah Thomas, Ginny Lou Culpepper, um, Patrick Morris, Todd Wilkins. Fair enough. I- okay, so we've got this list of people, but, I mean, I, I, still, I still think the point... I would make on that is yes okay that these these people do exist these children do exist but they're not explicitly placed in another homeroom of which you know really as far as I can tell I can't remember a time where they've talked about being in a different homeroom uh well Nora and Brooke are definitely both in a different homeroom because both of them fall prey to the I think I spoke to Elizabeth I approach Jessica thinking it's Elizabeth. Elizabeth's off sick, uh, but we weren't in the homeroom together. Like, because remember, Jessica had to give Nora a gym uh, thing. They're not in the same homeroom. It was one of the reasons they could get away with Brooke um, and Jennifer, because they didn't share any classes together. And only I think Jessica only had one class with her. So I think you're possibly overthinking this because this seems like perfectly normal. In, even in, in accordance with my own school. No, what I'm saying is that I, I, I take your point, but I just think it's not, they don't mention it, it's not something that's important to any of the stories then, if you know what I mean. They've never had any inter-homeroom interaction, like one homeroom against another homeroom in a softball game, for example, before this story. Yeah, it would have been good to uh, thread these games in, even if it was just a throwaway sentence in any of the preceding books. Again, the same thing about the constant turnover of homeroom teachers, because 
the book literally opens with we're getting a new home t- homeroom teacher and Alice and Ned immediately going, yeah, shut the fuck up. Sick to death of hearing about this fucking homeroom teacher. It's been nonstop. I'm sick of hearing about it. You've had a new teacher every week. And the reader's kind of like, no, no we have it. <laughs> this is brand new fucking information to me. Stop shouting. Yeah, I think it really is that the problem is that they whatever is convenient for the particular book is suddenly we're being told that that's how it's always been. Hello, 1984. So yeah, it does, it does really make it problematic. And even though we know, okay, not every character we've met is in this whole room that we can see the characters kind of disappear off page if they're not actively being used. So that's still not a guarantee that we know they're in a different homeroom or different classrooms. So I would have liked to hear a little bit more, like you said, even just a throwaway line about so-and-so won this or so-and-so's team lost this or whatever for the previous books. Yeah, because in the previous book, with Tom being so awesome, it would have been so easy to have him win a softball game in the homeroom playoffs. And that'd be another reason why his parents are such big fans of his work and Dylan feels like such a waste of space. Especially because we spend a good amount of time in Dylan's head in that book. He's one of our point of view narrators and nothing about homeroom games or how his brother is just dominating softball every morning. And all he hears about during announcements is how great his brother is. Nothing. And that would have been a perfect spot to seed the pieces of this story a little bit earlier, which they did for the first few books, sometimes less subtly than others, but they would set up the next book in just a few throwaway lines. But we really have nothing. We're dumped in the story that supposedly they've been playing softball for months and supposedly they have been complaining to their parents about new homeroom teachers for months. Neither of those things is actually true because we've literally just read all of these books in a really quick fashion. So we don't even have a much of a break between them. And maybe that's what they're counting on, the fact that they wouldn't come out back to back. But even then, kids are smart. They're going to notice your lack of continuity. It gets worse as we get on later, because as you said, like in the first book, in the very first book, they see Nora McCandy moving in and she's not even she doesn't even rock up until book three. So I liked it when it did that. But in one I recently read, the following book was called Big Brothers in Love Again. So it's obviously about Stephen. And the last line is Stephen comes in and eats a sandwich. I'm like, that's the fucking setup reminding us that Stephen exists. That's it. Way to go, book. And it was such a feeble way to end a book as well. It's like, oh, yeah, Stephen, the pig is eating yet a fucking again. But that was the setup. So it does get worse. And I apologize for that. But on the other side of it, you both said that you liked the unicorns cheering for the girls. That's one of the things I like about this book when um, some outside force kind of interferes with the perfection of Sweet Valley. And then regardless of whether they're boring and studious or snobby and vapid, they all kind of band together and stop being dicks for 10 minutes and try and overcome it. I love that trope where people who aren't friends, who maybe aren't enemies, though some of these people definitely are enemies, but at the very least, people who aren't uh, aren't friends have to band together to face some outside thing. And especially when it's teen and preteen girls coming together to support each other. We still don't see that a lot in teen fiction, and it's fantastic to see it here. And again, how the hell did this end up in Sweet Valley? I don't I don't know what to make of the fact that I really did enjoy this book a lot. I might even have loved it. Uh, the only things that really made me rage were the things that were supposed to make me rage. That's so weird to me. 
Well, there was the end where Mr. Davis got away with basically going, all right, I'm sorry. You know, he didn't apologize. It it did not ring true at all. Like, it didn't seem like he understood that it was wrong. All he understood was that he had to say, I'm sorry, in order for the boys to start doing well at sports again, because those frilly frou-frous would get on the field and perk him up a bit you know it really felt like he didn't get it and he just went oh fine All right ovaries aren't that bad you know for the purposes of the book i think he is we're supposed to think that he did get it and i agree that they did not show that at all i actually thought that was super realistic though it's not like this one thing is going to fix him he's just he's not convinced there's different he does what he has to do to let his boys succeed, but he doesn't actually believe it. He's not really going to change. And that's very realistic to the sort of situation when you're called out, people either double down and defend themselves or when they finally do apologize, it's not a real apology. It's very mean or it's, I'm sorry, I hurt you stuff like that. And it, it just rang very true for me in a way, again, that I don't expect from Sweet Valley. And I do think that the book actually thinks it wrapped things up with a neat little bow, but it felt like it actually ended in a much more realistic way. Though, of course, we'll probably never see him again, and certainly there won't be continued fallout from it. So there's only so much that I can give the book credit for that. Well, as I said in my recap, I still reckon Lila went crying to her dad because one of the ones I read that's much further along in the series, Mr. Bowman's now their homeroom teacher. So I'm like, yeah, Lila got shit done. Yeah, I see that as Callan too. I thought that was a really good point that you made. Uh, can we just have a, a few words on the uh, the fall from grace from Tom from the previous book? Because Tom was pretty good in the previous book and in this one he oh. was a massive catalyst for dickery. He was amazing in the previous book, so supportive of his brother, so smart. He defended him even after they fought. And in this book, he 100% drinks the Kool-Aid about sexism and how the girls just aren't as good and how this is obviously the natural order. And it just was the pinnacle of great brotherness to shit-tastic sexist asshole in 30 seconds or less. So yeah, that part was both annoying and horrifying and Sadly, again, sort of true. I mean, it probably wouldn't have been that tr- uh, drastic in reality. But yeah, someone can be really great in some ways and still be a sexist tool in other ways. So it, it does ring true, though I hated to see his fall from grace. Well, maybe the, maybe the previous book would have been a lot different if it had been Lillian instead of Dylan. Um, I read on TV Tropes, uh, I love that site, uh, that it's unintentionally very deep about another character who, in Sweet Valley Kids apparently has a goldfish and he's given it a Japanese name because he's very into something to do with Japan. I don't know. I've not read the series. And this was about a year ago and it just stuck in my head. And then in Sweet Valley Twins, he's a bit of a thug. And by Sweet Valley High and University, he's an outright racist. And in Sweet Valley Kids, he's got a racist father. And uh, TV Trope sort of says that it's unintentionally deep because... If you read it in that order, then it looks like his racist father has talked him round from someone who was fascinated by Japan and, you know, really open to it to punching anyone who's not white. That um, is actually really fucking deep. Damn. Possibly this is another one of those unintentionally deep things like Tom was good to Dylan because he's a boy, but it always, you know, and then Mr. Davis comes along and it's like, yeah, girls suck. <gasps> was that a yawn or a gasp? I think I've just remembered something from Sweet Valley High. 
Possibly Tom McKay is gay. I could be wrong about this, but huh. interesting. Yeah. So some internalized worry about what's going on with some internalized uh, misogyny. I could be wrong Ooh. about this, but suddenly it just popped into mind. Like, isn't he the one in the very special episode? It has been so many years since I've read Sweet Valley High, so you know, possibly we'll get one angry commenter because we don't have a lot. We don't have any, but possibly we'll get one now. Obviously, it wasn't Tom. Dove, you're talking scribble. Well, you know, if you do know, let us know, because I clearly don't know anything about it, having only read through the class trip book that we're about to discuss. So, yeah, let us know if there is a gay character in Sweet Valley High and if it's Tom or not. So let's move on to Raven's favorite book of the month. The Class Trip. Tell us about your love for this book, Raven. Okay, so this started off relatively okay. Um, it started off with the twins waking up and going, Oh, look, we're going on a class trip. We're going to the Enchanted Forest Amusement um, Park. And that's great because as a child at school, I too went to Alton Towers, which is our local amusement park, uh, with the school trips, and I, I could relate to that. However... Immediately, Elizabeth is presented as a character that she's not been for the entire series thus far, in that she complains to her mother that she she was almost forced to sit next to Caroline Pierce for this journey to to the amusement park, and she doesn't want to do that because Caroline's such a gossip. So instead of saying sorry, Caroline, or instead of arranging another person to sit with, she goes, "No, sorry, Caroline, I can't do it. I'm sitting with my sister." Then she asks Jessica to sit with her and Jessica throws a flip and throwaway promise to do so the day before now this is all done the day before the actual journey when she's got perfectly num- a perfect number of friends like Amy that she could ask to go and sit with her and Caroline works for her on the, the, the Sweet Valley Sixers as the gossip columnist so I, I don't understand why all of a sudden Elizabeth dislikes Caroline enough not to want to sit with her for what's possibly an hour's trip to this amusement park and why she can't for that just suck it up for that hour just suck it up and talk about the paper and the gossip columns that are coming up and that that, that just struck me as strike one in no I don't think I'm going to enjoy this book and that was on page two I'm like right okay they're not presenting Elizabeth as a character that I would necessarily would say was very Elizabeth at this stage then when it all goes wrong for Elizabeth in the Jessica is obviously going to be sitting with Lila on the bus and has forgotten about the promise and says well I'm sorry but there's plenty of other places you can sit, my dear sister. You've got plenty of friends. And she is forced to sit with Lila. Um, she is forced to sit with Caroline. Elizabeth goes into some mad apoplectic rage about this is the last straw. I can never trust Jessica to do anything. When Jessica has done far worse things throughout this series, she's almost neglected a dog to death. She's ran away with an older boy. Um, well, you name it. You, you, you're reading along with us, gentle, gentle um, reader, so you know very well what she's done. And in the grand scheme of things, forgetting a, a promise to sit with her sister on a bus shouldn't be the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. In almost literally every other book, we get a line or a whole paragraph or a whole page about how Elizabeth can never stay mad at her sister for long, even when she does terrible things. But this one little thing we're supposed to believe is the final act that will set her off and they're never going to be friends again it's unrealistic it has no continuity and you're right it makes no sense that having to sit by caroline is such a huge deal to her yeah and also like the first book literally opens with elizabeth going to jessica you got peanut butter in my hair you stole my scrunchie uh you made me late for class and you took my homework 
And Jessica goes, yeah, but I always do stuff like that. And Elizabeth goes, I know I can never stay mad at you. You're my best friend. And it's like this is just one of those things. This is this is one of those Jessica things that you ought to be accustomed to after 12 years of living with her. Multiple times, she literally takes the shoes off Elizabeth's feet because she wants to wear them. And I know this Hashtag is a very small never thing. Forget. <laughs> I know this is a very small thing, and clearly it's the thing that I keep getting caught up on. But yeah, this is not news to Elizabeth. She loves her sister despite all of her flaws, and sometimes because of all of these flaws. So yeah, it it's really, even before you get into the weird fantasy elements of this book, it's really asking you to stretch your disbelief as to what will and won't work for Elizabeth. Also, she's got plenty of friends. Like, literally every book, there's a poor, unfortunate soul who needs saving. Yeah, I know, I'm singing it too. Um, sorry, Wing's doing the dance. Sorry, start again. For the past 17 books, there has been a poor, unfortunate soul that Elizabeth has needed to rescue. Every single book. Surely she should have picked one of them because the, all of those people are infinitely more reliable than Jessica. I mean, all of those people are pathetically grateful to Elizabeth. They think that their life without St. Elizabeth would be fucking shambles. They would love to sit with her. Also, why is Caroline suddenly so interested in sitting with Elizabeth? She's got a best friend. She's called Elsie. Maybe Elsie wasn't allowed to go on the trip. Also, why are we going to the Enchanted Kingdom? Wasn't there all that hoo-ha about Disney? Did we decide that we couldn't afford Disney and we had to go to the cheap knockoff? And this one's like got Michael Mouse. <laughs> I feel like Disney maybe said, no, you really can't put our name in those books. Maybe try something else. Yeah, we've got our own twee little TV series. It's called Boy Meets World. Go fuck yourself, Sweet Valley. <laughs> nice. Love Boy Meets World. Okay, let's go back to this, um, the, the unrealism of this book. The unrealistic Elizabeth that we have here. I think the author then realises that this is not going to be the first time they're not going to be very realistic and branches out into massive fantasy bollocks where on one of the rides in which Jessica is following Elizabeth because Jessica's by herself having been abandoned by Lila at the first opportunity, which also wound me up, Amy and Elizabeth bump heads. And as soon as that happens, you go, right, dream sequence, because that's such a tired trope. Whenever in any sort of media, in TV, in film, whenever anybody bumps heads and goes, oh, and there's a bit of blurredness, or whenever anyone goes, oh, I'm just having a nap, for no apparent reason in the story, you know that it's going to be a dream sequence straight away. Well, Wing and I actually come from pointhorror.com, so whenever we see a head injury, we have a different reaction, which is head injury, walk it off, because pretty much... Every character in Point Horror can get twatted around the head and not suffer a concussion. So Concussions just don't exist in these stories. Well, I can sort of see that with Point Horror in that that is a, I'm presuming, story series in which there's lots, quite a bit of violence um, and people hitting each other on the head. But when it's in a, in a book like this, the sudden, a sudden head clash for no reason, you're like, well, what's that in there for? That's got to be a dream sequence starting up. And as soon as the dream sequence does start up, which is... 75% of the book is a dream sequence in which Elizabeth has decided, no, she is going to forgive Jessica, but she can't find Jessica. Let's go and find Jessica. As soon as that dream sequence starts, the entire book just falls to pieces. It does really feel like the author really wanted to write Alice in Wonderland knockoff and ended up in Sweet Valley and went, hey, I'm going to find a way to write it anyway. Yeah, 
the issue I've got with the dream sequences, well, the, the, there's about three issues, really. But the issue I have with dream sequences as a whole is that listening to other people's dreams in real life is boring enough, but a dream tends to be quite processional, and it'll be, well, I was dreaming that I woke up and then I walked down the stairs and then I picked up this and then I walked out the door and then I did this. And it's one thing after another. There's no nuance to the story. It's just a line of events that goes from A to B with no looking back. And because of that, the whole thing just goes, just trumps along like plod, 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 plod. Oh, now she's walking along this road and she sees this person and she does this. Oh, this scene's finished. Oh, now she sees another person and she does this. And there's no, there's no rationale behind it or anything. It's just a long series of, and then he did this, and then he done that, and then we did this, and then we did that, and then we did the other. And it, it reads like a, like a 10-year-old's a What I Did in the Summer book report. Add to that, it's really boring, even with all these fantasy elements. Like, if you can just hack off all of the logic that we've just gone through, if you read it, it's so bland and painful and dull and everything's so easily fixed and you know and the fact that it's elizabeth solving everyone's problems like uh, princess chastity or charity, charity her name is charity yeah yeah she she saves her um with a camera a flash of a camera what is this sorcery into the eyes of the knights she's a witch oh god everything's all fine whatever and then she meets tom sawyer randomly and Tom Sawyer, they talk about things that I that happened in the the the, the books about Tom Sawyer, which I I must admit I haven't read. So we were talking about this, weren't we, about how that reference doesn't really travel to the UK because it's not one of those books that British kids read as part of their growing up. In the same way that you guys have never read Famous Five, and we can't understand that because that's an integral part of growing up. It's if you read apart and all of a sudden she's going on adventures with the famous five and you're like well who the fuck are you right sorry i'm looking at wing and then suddenly realizing that no one can tell what, where i'm looking because this is a podcast uh no it's very true though it's it is a reference that's very american in its uh, point and Oh, kind of a weird one for her to make anyway. I mean, obviously, they should have made an Alice in Wonderland reference here, clearly. But uh, it kind of comes out of nowhere. It doesn't really fit the rest of her dream sequence. It's very weird. And you're right, it doesn't travel well outside of here. Also, there's a great line in there where she asks Tom Sawyer about something he did, and I honestly can't remember. And he replies in about a six-word sentence, and she responds by clapping her hands and going, yay, it's so much better than the book. And it's like, that was literally a sentence. You're a fucking idiot, Elizabeth. <sighs> that was in, like, I haven't read the book, but I guarantee that sentence was not better than an entire book. You're an idiot. That's probably very true. Now, this gets me to another thing that I don't like about dream sequences. I appreciate what you've just said there about oh, Elizabeth being an idiot in this. But the fact is, she's in a dream. And dreams don't make sense. And you can't really question what people do in a dream because they're in a fucking dream. So, yeah, but if that was a real dream, she would be needing a wee and unable to find a toilet with a locking door. Or she would be looking for a light switch in a dark room or she would be trying to find an apple in a room filled with oranges. It wouldn't she wouldn't be having an actual adventure like unless I'm doing dreaming wrong because mine are all nonsensical shite, which is the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is, because it's in a dream, whatever she does, 
you can't really sit there and go, what are you doing, Elizabeth? That's ridiculous. Because you could all of a sudden go, hang on, my legs are spatulas. Oh, and all of a sudden, I'm being attacked by ostriches. Whatever, you know, and it's, you're just like, okay. And that made recapping this really tough, because one of the good things we do when we recap, and one of the things that I enjoy when I recap, is questioning why all the characters have done certain things. But it just felt so pointless in the dream. So now she's walking on a rainbow with a mouse in her pocket. Is she? Right, okay. We can't really can't, can't really comment on that because what are you doing? What are you doing climbing that rainbow, Elizabeth? That's ridiculous. Don't climb the rainbow, walk on the ground. Oh, rainbows you'll fall through. It's like it's a dream. Who cares? And it's not even handled in a way like the Wizard of Oz, which is at the end presented as a dream sequence. But there's still logic that runs through it. If she's really in this other land, things still have to make sense per the rules of that land. And that's not really what's going on here with Elizabeth, because there are no rules that are set out. It doesn't make sense. It's like a an amalgam of all sorts of different stories that the author went, oh, I love these images. Let's just throw them all together into one dream. And it doesn't matter because it's just a dream sequence. Well, yeah, as a reader, it does matter. Yes, there's no internal logic to the whole thing. Suddenly Johnny Buck turns up in a limousine. And you're like, right. A flying A flying limousine, limousine, no less, yes. And then the mouse, she's got a mouse. And then all of a sudden Hansel and Gretel are furniture in a giant's house. And and then Peter Pan is an accountant. And uh, But before, it was all about it was all about knights. And, and you're just like, just what are you doing? And Tom Sawyer, it's, it's like they've basically put loads of ideas into a hat and they're just pulling them out one at a time. And saying, let's just do this now. Let's just do that. On the plus side, they actually came up with that Peter Pan is an accountant two years before Hook came out. So <laughs> kudos on that, one of the Jamie Suzannes. But you've got a lot to be ashamed of for everything else. Yeah, but they dealt with it in three paragraphs, didn't they? I'm six foot two and I'm an accountant. OK, bye. And then she rescues Jessica in the gingerbread house. And then all of a sudden a boy comes up dressed as an accountant in a big baggy suit. Yeah, I'm so free. I'm off to the forest now to see the Lost Boys. See ya. OK, well, thanks for dealing with that in a... Uh, fulfilling and engaging way the other thing that really annoyed me about this is i've just spent 17 books reading about sweet valley and the school and the peripheral characters and the teachers and the family and the 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 twins themselves and their and their personalities and i've enjoyed that i've enjoyed a number of those books and i've disliked a number of those books but those books are what uh, what i was contracted to read I'm like, yes, when I pick up a Sweet Valley book, I'm going to get this. And this wasn't a Sweet Valley book. This was 75% adolescent wank fantasy in, in a fictional place with characters that nobody cares about. It didn't. It would just happen to be Elizabeth Wakefield. You could have re- replaced that with anyone's name, chasing somebody else. The best part of this book was the 25% before the, the dream. And that bit was rubbish. I feel like I was shortchanged in this because it wasn't... It wasn't what I was expecting from a Sweet Valley book. And yes, when we're 90 books in, or 50 books in, start playing with the form. But I'm enjoying what they are at the moment. They don't have to be anything else. Yeah, and it's very weird because this is the first Super Edition book. And all the rest of the Super Editions just mean that the twins and their friends, in real life, no fantasy are just going on holiday somewhere else or that, you know, these books are slightly longer than the standard fare at the time they were published. So this one is really weird. And all I can imagine is they wanted to do a fantasy series and that's why it's called the super edition. This is why it's the first one. And everyone went, this is shite. And they went, 
Oh, right. Okay. Um, all right. Well, next time we're just going to send them to New York. How about that? New York. Real place, New York. Well, from other people's podcasts, I know there is at least one other book that really hardcore delves into being a fantasy book rather than a Sweet Valley book. Though, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, I don't actually know if it's Sweet Valley Twins or maybe one of the Sweet Valley Kids books. It's actually assigned to you. Um, What is it called? It's called The Magic Christmas, and you'll be doing it on the 4th of November 2018. Awesome. Look how well organized we are. Uh, Yeah, so it is also, I know, a fantasy book along these lines, maybe not a dream sequence. I don't know that. But just that it suddenly delves into fantasy where whatever ghostwriter at the time is like, yeah, I know I'm writing this series, but I'm going to write what I really want to write anyway. I hope it works better than this one because this was it could have been handled well to have a sort of fantasy dream sequence. To I, change up the format. This did not work well. I haven't read The Magic Christmas since I was a kid, but I do seem to remember that it is better than the class trip because it doesn't just seem to be, I want a scene from Peter Pan, I want a scene from Alice in Wonderland, I want Johnny Buck in a flying limousine, let's do a sentence on each. It, it seems to be written by a Jamie Suzanne who likes fantasy and sort of built a bit of a world. I yeah. I mean, I don't want to outright say it's good or anything because, you know, in November 2018, you're going to swing for me. Um, but I do know it's better than the class trip. But yes, it is hardcore fantasy. Um, but the rest of them, like the super chillers, are supernatural. And that's fine. Um yeah, but the fantasy of this just seems sort of so out of left field. It just doesn't seem to make sense because we go straight from Dylan, who's all depressed and um, the sexism of Mr. Davis into this. I mean, admittedly, this was supposed to come after the bully, but um, we didn't find that out until later. And then I realized if I swapped it around to the correct place, I, it would be assigned to me. And I didn't want to do that. Wow. Thanks for that knowledge. <laughs> you could have gotten away with that had you not literally just told us. And now now we're all going to be swinging for you. Holy crap, woman. No soup for you. To be fair, no, you're not. You have no wing. You have no leg to stand on because you'd have had to read it anyway. Raven, on the other hand, but we're married and... Please don't yeah. hurt me. I love you. Just remember you're going to be in an airplane with him for an extended amount of time in the near future. No, it's absolutely fine. As I've said, I don't really count this as a Sweet Valley book, bizarrely. Uh, it's just something I've read that is, is largely fanfic. I think a fantasy book based on the characters from Sweet Valley could have been great. I think they have Lila and the Unicorns being some sort of perverse royal court. Um, being in charge, I think they could have done that sort of thing. Had all the characters, we should do that. Fitting, you know, that'd be great. You know, if it's done with love and with well-executed thought about the actual characters that we've met, then excellent. But as we said, this is just a collection of scenes out of a hat. We should write that then, at some side point. Project. Like, side project, indeed. One of the hundreds. I do think that's a really good point, though. That had the stream sequence been about. The characters we've been dealing with had Elizabeth been dreaming about her friends in these fantastical ways. Yeah. It would have made a lot more sense. It would have been a much stronger story than just picking out these random side characters from other other books. Yeah, that would have been awesome. Uh, 
really wished they'd done that. And as far as I know, they haven't done that so far in that I've read. But I think I've got another 20 or so to go. So who knows? Fingers crossed. Oh, and at the end as well, they did the whole um, another trope that I hate, which is uh, as they were leaving the park, one of the what I presume was an animatronic mouse went by Elizabeth. And the double take is, oh, was it all real? No, it wasn't real. It was a fever dream by somebody who's banged her head. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Elizabeth, you're hearing things. You've got a concussion. But another thing about that that really wound me up, Amy was with her and said, did that mouse just speak and know your name? And it's like, well, Amy here heard that. So was it? Oh, fuck off. If it's just Elizabeth hearing that. I will. One thing, if it's not an animatronic mouse and it's just somebody dressed up as a mouse, then I think that's okay, because I'd rationalise that away as her going, bye Elizabeth, and then thinking to herself, uh, the person in the mouse costume thinking, that's that stupid cow who bumped her head on the on the thing, and was we, we all had to r- close the ride for an hour and a half, and you know, that's that would have been quite funny, um, but if it's an animatronic mouse, then yeah, it just needs kicking. I thought it was a person in the costume, although you're right, it's not clear at all, that was just my assumption, because this is a cheap knockoff of Disney, but there's also the theory that the Wakefields are the centre of the fucking universe, and everyone knows who Jess and Elizabeth Wakefield are. Well, that could have been really creepy. Bye, Elizabeth. You've got nice curtains. <laughs> oh, and so it's Mr. Nidick in the costume. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, yeah, dressed as a mouse. <laughs> that would be ace. I kind of want to read that story as well, so if you, if you want to write that up, we'll put it on the site. <laughs> yeah, so my, my, the, the final question I'd say to myself is, was this book worse than anything? And I think that taken together... Yes, I think it was, because Ithig, although I hated it with a passion, was actually a Sweet Valley book. It was fitting in the series, and it had all the things that you expected from a Sweet Valley book, or be them inconsequential and badly done and just awful, but at least it touched the bases that you wanted when you picked up the book, whereas this one just went, nah, I'm just going to give you a dream sequence and it's weird, and you're like, well, thanks for that. I agree with that, and last night we were discussing the front cover, weren't we, and the fact that it's got First of all, it's got someone in a sassy Jessica pose, but she's wearing pink. And then behind her is the twin wearing purple, doing a demure Elizabeth pose, which doesn't make sense. And then you've got Ellen Reitman and what we think is Tom McKay. And it's like, well, they're not in the book. So it's just misleading. I do suppose if they'd have put an animatronic mouse or walking up a rainbow and Hansel and Gretel characters that are actually furniture on the front cover everyone who went what the fuck's this someone's been eating some very powerful cheese i'm not going to read it but they could have easily done jessica and elizabeth standing next to the animatronic or inner fursuit mouse at the entrance of the magic kingdom or no it's not it's the enchanted forest isn't it they could have just had elizabeth just headbutting amy like really violently like Like in some yeah, sort of fight club would. thing, that'd be great. Or just the <laughs> final scene with Elizabeth and Amy just sitting on the bus looking stoned as fuck, maybe one of them with a black eye. <laughs> Amazing. And then the next book is like The Wakefields versus The Enchanted Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right, so that seems like it wraps up the class trip, which we none of us enjoyed and some of us hated more than others. So let's take it on into Bleak Valley. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, 
an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Well, I have a theory that ties the two um, second best and Boys Against Girls together in Bleak Valley. And that is that I think the Bleak Valley version of Alice and Ned may have kids from other relationships. And one of those kids has moved in and it's a boy and Elizabeth is the inferior sibling. And um, she's also the inf- inferior gender as well. And it sort of ties them, them in. So it's either Tom or Dylan, not sure which, um, is either Ned or Alice's child from a different relationship. And they've moved in and is treating Elizabeth kind of like a servant. And that sort of made sense to me. But I'm sure you guys have also got theories. No, I really like that one. Yeah. <laughs> mm, no, I quite like that. Yeah, that's quite sad. It could also um, tie that in with um, the um, the boys versus girls. The fact that one of Jessica's ways around the mistreatment that the that she's that the the, the, the girls are getting is to play up the girly <laughs> nature. Sorry, you, you good? No worries. Yeah, so that ties quite well into the boys versus girls in, in that one of the things that Jessica does in order to fight back against the mistreatment from Mr. Davis is the is the falling into the pathetic girl trope, if you like, and um, the just being, oh, we can't do this because we're girls. And maybe that is an indication of how powerless Elizabeth feels under the stairs in that maybe that's the way she she's acted in the past, trying to get her parents to form some sort of emotional bond with her. she Maybe she's been slightly more pathetic towards them and has got nowhere. Or maybe she finds that it calms them, that if she's soft and female and subservient, they are less angry with her. Like, if, if she's even slightly assertive or, you know, shows an ounce of backbone, things get worse. So she finds it much easier to be this feeble, estrogen-filled, like, cliché that they want her to be. And that's sort of how she deals with it. And then she hands it to Jessica to turn it into a weapon rather than just merely something to get her through the day. I think because you've tied those two together, it also works to tie in the class trip in that because this new sibling has come in and really disrupted everything, she now can't even find solace in her Sweet Valley like her Sweet Valley fantasy. So now she has to go off into an even deeper fantasy that of course makes no sense because she's throwing everything she can at it to try to find the peace that she's lost in Sweet Valley now. Wow, yeah. Like she lost Jessica for a moment. Like Jessica is her coping strategy and she lost her. And so she had to go through this ridiculous fantasy to get her back so that they can get into the continuity of the Sweet Valley twins Mm -hmm. fantasy 
life. I like that. You've just justified such a shitty book. I was saying it doesn't make the book better, but I can see how uh, a disjointed fantasy, if she, if she feels like her Sweet Valley fantasy is fracturing, trying to patch it with all of these other stories makes more sense to me than the actual book. And we've now given more thought to it, I think, than the actual author did. So. <laughs> I uh, yeah I like that I like that I mean I I saw the class strippers fitting into it uh, in a very literal sense I saw that as an actual blow on the head that she suffered at the hands of her folks that did send her off into this dream sequence it was actually a real fantasy of hers because it's so disjointed and so fractured and so full of well basic crap scenes where it's like she's got a picture of a wall from a from a magazine that she's got of a castle so the first bit's about a castle her one book might be the adventures of of huckleberry finn just dog-eared in the bottom of the cupboard that she's found so the next bit's that she's heard a johnny book song on the radio because the mum might like johnny book so johnny book comes and saves her she has got a friendly mouse who lives in this cupboard under the stairs with her so all of these things were actual fantasies that she she had under the influence of a blow on the head. So usually her fantasies are so rich and so deep and creates Sweet Valley, but when she's injured, physically injured, they're just the, the, the rantings of an idiot. I love that theory too. I can even also be tied in in that this new sibling is the one that gave her the head injury yeah, yeah. in a way that she's not used to. Also, listeners, you obviously can't see this, but as he was talking about her little friendly mouse that lives down there with her, both Dove and I clutched at our hearts and made these super soft, sad noises and faces. So good job, Raven. Also, um, I know it's a little bit spoilery, but it's only two books ahead. There's actually a book called The Bully coming up, um, and Dennis Cookman is the bully. So I'm actually wondering if he's perhaps the sibling. Oh, nice. So a future podcast to discuss. Exactly, yeah. I just thought I'd lay the groundwork um, so, you know, the seed is there when we come to. Wing so just you're, giggled. You're foreshadowing better than the actual books themselves. <laughs> I am indeed. Well, you so, just yeah. justified the class trip, so we would rock as Jamie Suzanne. Clearly. Clearly. Yeah. Oh, this is just really sad. Poor, poor Bleak Valley Elizabeth. We say that we really after to... every single time we discuss Bleak Valley. We really need to put Bleak Valley earlier in the podcast. It's such a downer thing to end on. And on that bombshell. <laughs> oh, this is just just depressing. All right, oh. to wrap. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, um. Actually, I don't know how this factors in, but Dylan's a writer just like Elizabeth is. So perhaps she even feels threatened that he might have a better fantasy thing in his brain, like escape. Because he actually wins against Elizabeth, which, um, well, it definitely doesn't happen near the end because she's like, no, fuck it. I'm Mary Sue. I'm winning at everything. And if I'm not winning, Jessica's winning and fuck anyone who's not Elizabeth or Jessica Wakefield. But at this point, she, um, you know, Dylan wins. So maybe she feels that... um, this new step sibling is um, well is better than her even in creativity, which is something that I think she's been clinging to. She's like, okay, my life is shit, but at least I like writing and thinking about stories. And he does it too. Well, screw him. Right now they have this perfect child that does everything great, including what she does. The one thing she has, so she really has no place here anymore. 
Actually, didn't you say that Tom McKay looks literally like a? Um, they took the same model for the girl and made it a boy? Yes. I mean, I'm assuming that's Tom in the cover photo of it. But, yeah, he looks like a Wakefield. I am really, really concerned about the gene pool in Sweet Valley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he is, you know. Yeah, maybe she. Maybe it's more than one sibling for all we know. But either way, no matter how many step siblings she gets, she's always going to be the worst one, isn't she? And what's interesting about that is that both boys are on the cover. Dylan does. I mean, I assume it's Dylan because he looks like he's the one picking the fight. Dylan does not really look like a Wakefield, but his brother absolutely does. Actually, does Dylan look a bit like Stephen? Oh, he might, actually, because, yeah, Stephen... Let me looks, try and find a Stephen cover. I think Stephen, they say, takes after their dad more. Who is yes. yes. Okay, he doesn't look like him in Big Brothers in Love. Maybe, possibly, the Wakefield Strike It Rich. I mean, it's not exactly the same model. It's the same uh, artist each time, isn't it? It is, Maybe yeah. Maybe just can't draw faces very well. That's very... <laughs>
couple of oh, weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not massively out of, uh, out of sync, is it? No, and that was the best I could do until I think she was called TG stepped in and sent us a PDF explaining the order that everything goes in. Um, great, yeah, very awesome. Thank you, TG. Also, making assumptions about your gender. Apologies. Um, yeah, so thank you, TG. You are an awesome human being. Exactly. Are we done? I think we are. I think we are. Are we all out of talky-talky? Okay, well, it looks like we're wrapping up for the week. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to our podcast. We enjoy doing it. Hopefully, we will be doing it for many, many months to come. I'm Raven. I'm here with Wing and Dove. And, uh, yes, thanks. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.